for another episode of Occam's Razor, a podcast about the unexplained. Brought to you on Podcast Radio with your host, Jim Bedchill. Welcome to Occam's Razor. This is episode uh, 49. Tonight's special guest, Leah Fisher, is an author of funny adventure novels for kids that explore the world of cryptozoology or search for legendary animals that might be real. Uh, her debut novel, The Cryptid Catcher, uh, received a starred review from Booklist and was a Junior Library Guild selection. The sequel, known as The Cryptid Keeper, was written while Leah was the writer in residence with Aspen Words and was a finalist for the Colorado Book Awards in Juvenile Literature. Leah travels the country, uh, obviously the US, speaking at schools, libraries and Bigfoot festivals where she gets kids interested in reading and science through searching for hidden animals or cryptids. Cryptozoology for kids is her speciality. Prior to becoming an author, she trained for a while, a very short while, to be a Hollywood stunt person. She lives in Colorado near several Bigfoot sightings. Hello, Leah. How are you? Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me on. Excellent. Excellent. All the way from Colorado, how are things there? We're uh, we're stuck in a lockdown here in Auckland, uh, New Zealand at the moment. So uh, level four, not a lot uh, happening here. I'm just sort of staring out the window and there's... The birds are busy, but that's about it. So, um, yeah, all, all good at your end, I assume. Summer coming to an end? Yes, summer is coming to an end, which, you know, normally I don't look forward to, but it's been so smoky here with all the wildfires across yeah. the country. And so it'll be nice to get some snow and some clean air. And, uh, yeah, it just seems like it's one apocalypse after the other, but uh, hopefully fall will be a better season. When it, when it rains, it pours, they say. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm interested in hearing about your uh, your stunt career in, ho- in Hollywood. Tell us a little bit about that before we get into your books. <laughs> oh, goodness, yes. I did train for a while, a very short while, to be a Hollywood stunt person, meaning that I did take like a six-week course in how to fight with all sorts of uh, broadswords and daggers. I was very much into the more uh, medieval fights. And I thought, oh, I could be a Hollywood stunt person with a broadsword until I actually met a real female Hollywood stunt person and <laughs> saw her fall and take hits to the face. And I was like, you know what? I think I'll just watch movies and not try to be in them. Fair, so. fair play. Yeah. I've, I'm a bit the same. I've done, well, not so much in the physical aspect, but I've done a bit of acting kind of accidentally and, and ended up in a few sort of films and stuff like that. I'm not sh- quite sure how that happened, but uh, to call me an actor is, is a bit of an insult to people that have actually <laughs> actually studied, if you know what I mean. But um, talking about cryptozoology, um, has this been a lifelong thing for you or is it something you you thought about telling telling children telling your story um how did that come about 
Yeah. So I actually did not know what cryptids even were until about 10 years ago. Um, I happened to be reading the newspaper and I was reading an article about Charlie Sheen, the famous Hollywood actor, and he was putting together a hunting party to go to Alaska to find the Otter Man. And I thought, who is the Otter Man and what does Charlie Sheen want with him? Yes. And so I started researching the Otter Man and I discovered that the Otter Man was a cryptid. And I thought, what's a cryptid? I, I know about myths and mythology, but yeah. I'd never heard about cryptids and cryptozoology. And so when I learned that cryptids were legendary animals that might be real today, like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, and how there is an entire field of study dedicated to finding these animals, um, then I just couldn't get enough. And I went down the rabbit hole of learning about cryptids and cryptozoology and thought that an adventure story for kids about these animals would would really be neat. And so that's what started me down the path. And was this your first venture into writing or had you had some background in that as well? Or? You know, I was always an avid reader, and but I hadn't done heart, any writing since college. I was actually an actor in New York City, not a stunt person, but um, a, a safe stage actor. And I wasn't getting a lot of acting work, but I knew I wanted to do something creative. And this idea of a story came to me and I thought, well, let me see if I can do something creative with writing. And so I, when people say, how did you become an author? I like to say, well, I was a failed actor. And that's how I became an author. Fair enough too. <laughs> Um, now, Colorado um, is, well, everyone in the U.S. has sort of got a Bigfoot story, hasn't it? So is that the tales of Bigfoot in Colorado, is that what you used as your source material or is it just, um, how did you get the inspiration writing about Bigfoot? Yeah, yeah. So once I started researching Bigfoot, I I didn't realize that that Bigfoot was such a big thing. And that there was so much research being done on Bigfoot. Yep. And the more I researched Bigfoot and the more I researched the evidence gathering that people do and the theories behind who, what, who and what Bigfoot is, um, it just really opened my mind to the possibility that there might be an undiscovered ape species in North America. And so the more I started researching it, the more I realized that cryptids aren't just these fantastical animals that really don't exist. They are fantastical animals that really could exist. Mm. And we have actually discovered cryptids. Um, there are many animals that were just animals of myth and legend until scientists proved that they did indeed exist. And um that's right. I mean, in recent times, yes. we've had the uh, the Flores Man and stuff like that um, in in Indonesia, um, which, which shows some sort of you know, at least in a parallel way, linked to your know, missing link. Um, so, I don't think um, we had a fellow on called Richard Freeman um, on a previous episode, and he's done some pretty in depth. Uh, research and actually, you know, um, had boots on the ground and gone looking for 
for miniature Bigfoots in Indonesia. Um, they have one then called the Orang Pendek, which you've, you've probably heard of. And I think that's the one that holds the most weight in terms of eyewitness accounts and stuff like that. In the sense that, you know, an island off Sumatra, they found the, the Hobbit people a few years ago, or the, the sort of um, remnants of what they believe was a, 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 a race of short people, effectively. So I think there is some some truth to some of it. Um, obviously, it gets embellished a lot. You know, legends become fact with some people and stuff like that. How do you distinguish the the two? When people come up to you, do when I doing a show like this, I get people come up to me a lot and say, "You obviously believe in Bigfoots and UFOs and Loch Ness monster." And I find it hard to um, compartmentalize them all together personally because I think they're all quite quite different. I mean, anything outside of uh, or inside of the paranormal as we know it um, tends to get sort of lumped together. What's your opinion on just just your personal opinion? Let's use Bigfoot as an example. Um, do you think you know these beasts exist in North America, or do you think it's a case of mistaken identity? Um, I mean, that many people can't be wrong, can they? Yeah, I really think that there's some truth to the Bigfoot legend. Um, I was just because of the number of eyewitness accounts, but more importantly, due to Bigfoot's historical origin. I was speaking to a professor of folklore recently, and I said, what's the difference between a folktale that's made up from imagination versus a folktale that's based upon something that might be real? And he said, the difference is you want to look at what is its historical origin? In other words, how did the legend begin? And you can kind of trace if it's just a story of imagination or if there might be a grain of truth to it. And he said, if you look at Bigfoot, it has one of the most realistic historical origins, meaning the legend of Bigfoot has been around for thousands of years in North America. Um, there are pictographs in caves in California of Bigfoot. There are tribes in Oklahoma who have believed in Bigfoot for a thousand years. And so you have the same report of the same kind of creature from different people in different geographies in different time periods. And you have to look at that and realize that's either a massive coincidence or people are seeing the same thing. Mm. And so I definitely think that there is uh, there is something to the Bigfoot legend that is based in truth. And I think it gets marginalized a little bit. Um, people tend to think of Bigfoot as one, one entity, um, which looking at it biologically, there's obviously got to be a breeding population of, of these animals, if they are animals. I mean, that's, that's the first thing. Guys like the fellow Professor Meldrum, who's, who's one of the leading crypt cryptozoologists in the world you're probably aware of um his work yes um, he, he, absolutely yeah he, he goes straight down the the biological um side of things you know and and which is which is fine i mean that's that's a good way if, if that's the way you want to approach it other people tend to go more with the you know mythical beast or not mythical beast but sort of a mystical beast that hides away from people and and overtly shy and and you know you never you never see see him because he's trying to keep away from, you know, well, humans are pretty crazy. Obviously he's probably just trying not to get shot. Um, to, to me, I mean, you know, that's, that's part of it, isn't it? To me, I don't, I really don't know. Even after 49 episodes, I'm still a little bit undecided as, as to what the, the phenomenon represents or what it could be. I mean, 
I think with the heightened UFO uh, movement at the moment, the activity of UFOs um, and disclosure and all that sort of stuff, I mean, I heard someone the other day say that Bigfoots could be alien pets. They could be the, you know, like a giant dog that they, they let out for a run out of their spaceship. Where do you sit on something like that? Are you more likely, uh, or you, do you sway towards Bigfoot being something biological, uh, a forgotten ape? Um, an undiscovered ape, uh, an offshoot of the the the, the evolutionary chain, or do, or do you see it more as something that could be from another planet? You know, I'm definitely more of the in the ape camp. Uh, you know, at least here in America, we kind of have two different camps of Bigfoot belief. Where there's the ape camp, and then the what we call the woo camp. Um, and the ape camp, we believe that Bigfoot is an undiscovered ape species. And then the woo camp is more that Bigfoot might be interdimensional, that Bigfoot might have some kind of UFO connection because oftentimes when there's a UFO sighting, it coincides with a Bigfoot sighting. So mm. what is that connection? I had I had not heard that Bigfoot might be a pet of aliens. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, I, I, am, I, I think am it's just as plausible as the other... The other uh explanations personally i mean if aliens are visiting us which i i'm relatively convinced something's going on wouldn't be other realms of possibility for them to have pets would it yeah absolutely and i'm i'm definitely open to any and all possibilities um but for the work that i do with kids where i talk about how you can learn about science through searching for legendary animals like bigfoot i kind of do have to keep it somewhat in the scientific realm, because I don't know how many teachers would invite me to their school if I wanted to talk about aliens and Bigfoot <laughs> versus yeah. how, how, how cryptozoology can act as a gateway science to get kids interested in other life sciences. Um, but personally, I am open to any and all answers about what Bigfoot might be, because the more you learn about the world, the more I learn that we know so little and there are so many possibilities out there um, for so many different things to exist. And I think their absence from regular view could perhaps be explained away with the, the alien theory, you know, whether they're pets or they're actually aliens of their own volition. Cause I often on these shows, you know, you're finding Bigfoot and all this sort of stuff and you get people you know, who are really invested in, in the mythology of the whole thing, you know, and they'll have one opinion either way, you know, and I think it's good to have an open mind, obviously, anything to do with cryptids or the paranormal in particular, it's good to have an open mind because it's, it is an unexact science until we get some sort of concrete evidence. And are we ever going to get that concrete evidence? Have we got concrete evidence and it's been covered up in some, you know, in some way? We don't know. I don't think it helped the Bluff Creek footage back in 1967, the Roger Patterson uh, footage that everyone knows of, the Patty uh, footage. Um, yeah. I mean, that continues to divide scientists, people far more learned than me, um, you know, up until this day, people that know about uh, biomechanics of, of gait and, and you know, um, human movement and animal movement and ape movement, you know, and that's there's still argument over that. I mean, that's not unusual in the scientific community for people to have differing opinions, but it certainly invokes quite a quite heated debate even to this day, and that film sort of... 50 years old or so now, isn't it? So, 
Um, yeah. Where do you sit on that film? Just that interest. You know, with that film, the thing that you know, again, I'm curious about it. I'm I'm skeptical, but I have an open mind. I've you know listened to other people's evidence about how Hollywood um, special effects expert look at the video, and they say there is no way that that is a suit. Um, but the thing that swayed me the most is something that happened recently where I met Bob Gimlin at the Medellin Falls Bigfoot Conference in oh, Washington nice. State. And, you know, and he, he was just the kindest, most generous, sweetest man. He's 90 years old now and just so kind. And, you know, people were flocking to him to meet him because he's a celebrity. Sure. And I kind of commented to somebody, I said, well, of course, even if, let's say the video is a hoax, of course, he's keeping the legend alive because look at the attention he gets. Yeah. And somebody said, but Leah, he didn't always get this kind of positive attention. Up until about 1983, he was really shunned. And, and it was affecting his life negatively because people were like, would you just say that the video is a hoax? This has gone on for too long. Uh, I don't know if this is true, but the gentleman said that his wife lost her job because he wouldn't retract that it was a hoax. Like it was really working negatively against him. And he still said, this video is real. It is not a hoax. Mm. And so for someone to perpetuate this story for so many years, even when it wasn't benefiting them in any way, that makes me think, well, maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's real. And then, um, and then, yeah, everything with the gate and the Hollywood special effects saying it's real. I think there really is something to it where I'm just not, I'm not going to easily dismiss it as being fake. What what sort of questions did you get to ask him? Um, I, I really just met him for a moment and I gave him a big hug and he was just delightful. And I just took a photo of him, took a photo with him and I didn't, get to dive into his experience because it was, uh, you know, busy day at the conference and I wanted other people to be able to talk to him. Um, but did just he, getting did to he meet do him a, in person. Sorry. Did he do a keynote sort of thing or was he sort of his advanced age sort of prevent him doing, you know, stand up, stand up, taking questions and things like that? Yeah. I think he was just in his tent the whole time, signing books and greeting people one-on-one. -on -one. Okay. I'm not sure I was out and about in a different area during the conference because um, they had us all spread out with COVID. Uh, so I'm not sure if he gave a talk, but he was definitely there the entire weekend talking to people one on one and sharing stories. Now, these these conferences, do you attend many of them pr to promote your book, Cryptozoology? And yeah. That sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah. I I go to Bigfoot conferences, of which we have a lot of here in America. Sure, you and do. And I do yes. my presentation. Yes, and I do my presentation, which is cryptozoology for kids, and it's kind of a cryptozoology one hundred and one, where I talk about what cryptids are. Uh, I talk about how cryptids are not just animals we haven't discovered, but how they are animals that are extinct, that are rediscovered. And then I talk about how there are so many things left to discover on this planet, about how many scientists believe that we have only discovered 1.5% of life on Earth. And so the possibility 
of every year discovering new species of plant, animals, fish, insect, birds um, is, is absolutely true. And so I talk about all of that to get kids interested in reading, in legends, and maybe in getting, getting out there and practicing some life sciences to discover new species. What is the balance of reaction from children specifically? Um, obviously, children have a vivid imagination. Um, do they, what, how do they see Bigfoot? Do, do you get kids telling you, oh, my dad says this is a load of rubbish and stuff like that? Do you get that? Or are there, is that sort of sense of wonder still intact? Um, and they, you know, disregard anything they hear from their parents and sort of get lost in the, in the mythos of it all. What's interesting is that it's the parents who are big believers in Bigfoot and adults seem to love the Bigfoot mystery and they instill that joy in their kids. So whenever I give a presentation and talk about Bigfoot, kids always raise their hands at least one or two in the audience. And they say, my dad saw Bigfoot or my uncle saw Bigfoot. It seems like there's always at least one child who has a story of a family member who ha has seen Bigfoot. And right? so they, they are definitely in, into the legend and the mythology. Absolutely. They are, they are definitely not jaded. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing, right? Before the before the world makes them cynical, it's good that they've got something to believe in. Or you've got to have some mystique. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Have you uh, presented just in Colorado, or has it been around uh, the U.S. in different states in the U.S.? Yeah, I've presented in all sorts of different states. I presented uh, the Medellin Falls Bigfoot Festival, which was in Washington, and then the Virginia Bigfoot Festival. Uh, and also the International Cryptozoology Conference, which is in Maine. And then in another month here, I'll be down in Texas at, uh, for the 25th annual Texas Bigfoot Conference. And a lot of people don't associate Texas with Bigfoot because Texas is such a hot state. So it's very hot and dry down there. Um, but Bigfoot is seen all over Texas. So it's a big uh, research area for Bigfoot. And I don't think there's any state that's immune from sightings, though, is there? It appears, well, from my rough uh, knowledge of it, from watching shows like Finding Bigfoot, it seems like every state sort of has um, sort of uh, had report reported sightings now, isn't it? it, it traditionally, it was sort of, yes. uh, as you say, Washington State and, and that sort of place. Uh, and California, um, obviously, there, a lot of that will stem from the Bluff Creek uh, videos, as before mentioned. But, um, Look, everywhere's got Bigfoot now, I think. I don't think it's uh, – I think the sightings, you know, still pile up a lot more in, in the traditional areas. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't seem like yes. anyone doesn't, doesn't have a story nowadays. Yeah, I think the last time I checked, Bigfoot has been seen in every state in America except for Hawaii uh, because apparently he can't swim there and so far no one will sell him a ticket to fly there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it seems logical. We actually uh, have our own uh, Bigfoot in New Zealand, um, a fellow called Mark Capel, who comes on the show. He used to live in the US and he was a full-time paranormal investigator. Um, now he lives back in New Zealand. He's in New Zealand by birth. Um, he hunts for a, 
local cryptid called the Moihau Man, um, which is based actually not that far from where I live here, um, down an area called the Coromandel, and he goes to a research site. Um, now, he looks at it more in a, um, uh, I don't know what the best term for it is, but basically he gets, he, I think he sees himself kind of as an empath or something like that, and the Bigfoot sort of um, attract him more than the other way around, and he goes to a certain area, but he has picked up some quite interesting phenomenon on tape in terms of um, audio recordings and stuff like that, and and some pictures which, you know, are debatable, but there is a local legend. Some of it may stem from um, a fact that a monkey got loose or a chimpanzee got loose in the area sort of 100 years ago or something like that, so there could be some correlation there, but at the same time, I'm sure there's every every sighting has sort of, uh, you know, a converse explanation that someone else will offer, but it's um, it's interesting how the how it's spread all around the world, isn't it? It's not just a North America. Thing. Yeah, yeah. It seems like there are so many different countries and cultures that have, you know, the wild hairy man mm. uh, legend for sure. Quite and prominent in Russia too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I work at the Sasquatch Outpost here in Colorado, which is Colorado's Bigfoot Museum. I, I know it and well. Speaking I, of I, Russia. Yeah. I see it on, uh, um, and on Instagram a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, sell all sorts and people, of um, tidbits and, yeah, excellent stuff. And every day people come in there and tell me their Bigfoot stories. And most recently a man came in who had just been to Russia and the man was looking around the Sasquatch post, you know, his eyes were wide and he was looking at all the statues and he came up to me and he said, I just got back from Russia and I saw something that I can't explain. And I said, well, what did you see? And he pointed to a poster of Bigfoot and he said, I saw that. And I said, oh, so you saw Bigfoot in Russia. And he goes, but I don't believe in Bigfoot. And I said, but that's what you saw. And he goes, that is what I saw, but I don't believe in Bigfoot. I'm like, but it sounds like you did see Bigfoot. And he was, I could tell that he knew what he saw and he didn't know what he saw, but the only way that he could explain it was to say that it was Bigfoot that he had seen, but yet he wasn't a believer in Bigfoot. And I found that to be an interesting story because when someone is really uncertain about what they saw and they can't quite put a name to what it is, it makes me really believe that their experience is real, that they're not just telling me a story to tell a fun story. And that took place in Russia. I'm interested in the, um, as you say, uh, obviously you get a lot of tourists and people involved in the phenomenon um, coming in. You sell T-shirts and, and replica Bigfoots and things like that. It's a, it's a whole movement, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. We have T-shirts, keychains, earrings, statues, and then an entire uh Bigfoot Museum that people can go through to read about the history of Bigfoot and evidence of Bigfoot. And then, of course, see we have a big uh, mama Bigfoot and Bigfoot baby in there that people can can enjoy. And take selfies with, I assume. Absolutely. Lots of <laughs> selfies. <laughs> Tell me more about the uh, museum side of it. What, what sort of um evidence is, is in there is it have you got plaster casts and that sort of thing absolutely with the plaster cast of the footprints you know and we talk about the mid-tarsal break uh that uh demonstrates that it's a footprint from an ape not from a human 
we a lot of times, at least in Colorado, Bigfoot is known for braiding the manes of horses. And so we have examples of manes that have been braided. And mm-hmm. that may not seem like a big deal, but recently a couple came into the museum and they just moved to Colorado with their horses from a different place. And they were in the area and they told me that the weirdest thing had been happening, that they had moved to a ranch, which was very remote. Nobody was around. You'd have to drive, you know, miles to get there. And they said that ever since they moved uh, to Bailey, which is where the museum is, which is where a lot of Bigfoot sightings are, they said they come to their horses every day and their horses' manes are braided. And they said it's never happened before, only happened once they moved to Bailey. So that can be um, evidence of Bigfoot. Uh, Then we also have examples of pictographs that have been drawn of Bigfoot in caves. Uh, and then a video with a lot of eyewitness sightings. So, so just a lot of, yeah, so just a lot of uh, exploration of, of the evidence, potential evidence of Bigfoot. Now, these cave paintings um, and the like that I'm, I'm assuming is Native American stuff, um, how far back does that date, do you know? That's a good question. I don't know how back the furthest uh, pictographs go. Um We do have a lot of Native Americans who do come into the outpost. um, And what they've told me, I certainly don't want to appropriate their legends, but they have told me that Bigfoot is very much believed in, in the Native American community, that they believe that Bigfoot uh, is more of the spiritual realm, uh, which is why he can step in and out between our realm and the spiritual realm, and that uh, Bigfoot is somewhat a protector of their sacred lands. And so it's really interesting to me when I talk to the Native Americans about their belief system, uh, because they have a very strong, powerful belief in the existence of Bigfoot. And there is some, it's interesting that the the commonality between their anecdotal reports um, and reports around the world, because when you Look at cryptids, you know, they're often unique to the the particular area. I'm thinking Loch Ness Monster and stuff like that. Sure, there's lake monsters in, in other parts of the world, you know, Champy and, and this sort of stuff. But Bigfoot, seem, there seems to be some definite consistency in terms of um, physical appearance is the first thing and elusiveness is, is the second, uh, which makes it interesting. And I think it, it provides a bit more weight to the whole thing. Um, I think with lake monsters, I, I know you've touched on those in, in your um, writings and things like that as well, haven't you? Um, have you ever visited Loch Ness? I've never been to Loch Ness, but now that I've written a, quite a bit about Nessie, I would love to go to Loch Ness and yeah. try to get a sighting and just be there for myself and see if I can witness any activity. I've always found Loch Ness um, one of the more credible examples of, of cryptids. Obviously, the, the legend has grown over time. Um, you can explain it away. A lot of people have tried to, you know, saying a giant sturgeon or, you know, even going further back to a remnant of dinosaur age, a plesiosaur or something like that. And obviously, the, the legend is, of Nessie has grown and and commercialized probably not so much outside of the the Loch Ness area but you know in terms of 
it does have some it does have some weight behind it because a lot of people have you know had a pretty good look. Um, it's something they assumed was a lake monster, haven't they? And you know, there's been theories thrown forward that some elephants have been bathing and people have been mistaken. But at the same time, I think these po-face sort of critics and and scientists that get involved in these things, um, sure, their their job is to look for evidence, and you know. Um, it must drive them crazy when they can't pinpoint exactly what people are seeing. And, and I think it's it's the easy option is for them just to discredit people and say, no, you didn't see that. But unless you see these things with your own eyes, um, in the case with Bigfoot, I know this happens a lot, you know, what right do they have to tell you what you've seen? Do you know what I mean? They weren't there. Um, and they're just trying to connect all the dots and pieces to the puzzle themselves to satisfy themselves that you, what you've seen is is something that isn't, you know, inside the realms of science as we know it, which is a little bit disappointing. I Absolutely. Think. And the th- yeah. And the thing I love about the Loch Ness Monster it's, is it's one of the few cryptids that scientists are studying themselves. For a lot of cryptids, it's mainly citizen researchers who are looking for them. Mm. Um, and I think that's because look, it, there's not a lot of support in the scientific community to look for these legendary animals. Um, it, it, it can be challenging for a scientist to put their name on a paper yeah. saying that they're researching Bigfoot. I was, it's, it's, I would say, I would go so far as to say it can be frowned upon uh, at least in America, in the scientific community, and especially in the academic community. Um, when I spoke at the International Cryptozoology Conference, a woman came up to me and she said that she was a professor of biology at a college. She had tenure um, and she said that she saw a sea serpent and she actually wrote an academic paper on her experience and the possibility of the existence of sea serpents and her college got wind that she was writing this paper. And they said, if you publish this paper of sea serpents, you will lose all credibility to us as a professor. Really? And so basically it was a, you know, a threat of, uh, you can't really publicly say that you saw a sea serpent or it will make you look, uh, not very good in our eyes. And so I love how Dr. Jeff Meldrum is supported by the university where he teaches uh, to speak, to freely speak about his research and belief in Bigfoot. And he but I think that ne- that's a very rare case. You're right. He, he sticks his neck out a lot, doesn't he? Because I see him on a lot of shows and, and I know from, from working in the media, you, you do have go-to people. Um, you, you're not, you know, whether it's low-level soundbite or just comments for an article. But this guy really puts his, his face out there, doesn't it? And he, he stands behind his research and he's he believes what, he, what he's researching, you know, and he doesn't really care about what the scientific fraternity think of him or he doesn't seem to anyway, which is which is encouraging and quite refreshing because, you know, you've got to have a pioneer in, in any field to, to sort of get results, don't you? Absolutely. And... So when that's like when a lot of people ask me questions about why this about Bigfoot, why that about Bigfoot, when they say, well, why haven't we found Bigfoot? I basically say, because nobody's looking for him. The only people looking for Bigfoot are citizen researchers 
who might do it on the weekends. They don't have funding to go look for Bigfoot. The uh, Pacific Northwest temperate rainforest in America is the largest temperate rainforest in the world. Mm. And if people think that it, you know, it's 1.5 million acres, we have not explored that entire uh, rainforest for Bigfoot because we just, nobody's has the money to do it. Uh, and it's just citizen researchers taking whatever weekend time they can to go do it. But the entire rainforest certainly has not been mapped in a scientific endeavor to find Bigfoot. And then people say, well, what about drones? Well, if you fly a drone over the rainforest, all you're going to see is a bunch of trees. Mm. And drones are expensive. Batteries are expensive. Again, there's not funding to look for these uh, for these cryptids. And so it's just the average person out there trying to find them. So if we had a little bit more backing of the scientific community, um, we may be able to make some faster uh, discoveries for sure. The I suppose the only example that I can think, well, not the only, but the most well-known example of all this um, would be the work undertaken by Robert Bigelow um, when, he, when he purchased the Skinwalker Ranch, um, you know, making a... You know, he was a he was a guy of means, um, and I suspect he was a bit like us. You know, he 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 really wanted to know what was going on outside the the realms of our known universe, our known possibilities, and stuff like that. Um, his findings, I don't know where they're inconclusive. He he um, he certainly sold the property, as you're probably aware, and you know, and that was I don't think that was the end of it, but I think probably he just moved on and said he wasn't getting the evidence he wanted um, after assembling um, a, a crack team of scientists, so to speak. Perhaps he got really good evidence and he just kept it to himself. I mean, that could be it as well. He's um, you know, he's living a boyhood fantasy, really, isn't he? You know, he's um, out there hunting ghosts and monsters and UFOs and stuff like that. If if someone paid me to do that, I would be I'd be all over it as well. But I mean, I think um, it takes someone from outside the the scientific community. Um, it's it's fine, obviously, to work with with people who are conscious of the scientific method and um, will take all the necessary steps. But I think um, it, it takes a rogue entrepreneur and someone with the with the resources, the finances, and and the time, more importantly, to uh, to get answers or attempt to get answers to these questions, isn't it? Absolutely. And when you do get science involved in the search for these cryptids, uh, you do get really interesting results, just because they do have the resources. Like um, on the uh, TV show, oh, I believe it's called Expedition Bigfoot. Uh, they oh, have a yeah. primatologist on there, Dr. Um, oh, I hope I don't say her name right or wrong, but Dr. Maria Mayor. But she just discovered chimpanzee DNA in soil in Kentucky. Really? And so to have, so she has the resources to be able to get soil samples and run DNA tests on it, uh, which is something that isn't available to. Uh, a non-scientist just because of, uh, you know, running DNA samples from what I understand can be pretty cost, pretty costly. Yeah. And especially if you don't know exactly what you're looking for, what kind of DNA you're looking for. Um, so to have her as a scientist out in the field researching and trying to find a new species of primate in America is really great. And she's finding some really uh, getting some wonderful new evidence. 
Yeah, I, that show's on actually in New Zealand as well. I, I do catch it. So it's actually running at the moment. Um, I do catch it sometimes. And it's, yeah, like it, it brings a um, realistic perception to a lot of it. I think um, people get lost a little bit in the Finding Bigfoot shows and the enthusiasm of Bobo and, and Cliff and these sort of guys when they're, when they're out and about. Um you know, I think it's great fun. I think it's it's good entertainment, and that's that's shown by the fact that the show's been running for a decade or so, probably longer. Um, it shows that there's a non-stop interest in in Bigfoot across generations, um, and I think that's probably what you're trying to do with your books a little bit, isn't it? You know, introduce it to children have heard of Bigfoot and cryptids and Loch Ness monsters and that sort of stuff, and. How do you when when you write your books? You is it sort of in a narrative? Is it sort of a, what style of writing do you use? To obviously you have to tailor it to to your target audience. Um, do you eliminate the scientific aspect, or is it just more the fantasy side of it for you? Uh, I mean, there's certainly the fantasy side of it, but I do add definitely a little bit of science um, in my books. It's about a group of kids who travel the world looking for these animals that apparently don't exist. So their job is to prove the existence of these animals and then go and find them. And the way that you prove the existence of an animal, a new species is through the scientific method. So, you know, of course it has to be things that 13 year old kids can get their hands on, but they do data collecting, analyzing photographs, looking at hoaxes, finding geographies of where there are sightings, uh, and then they figure out how you can actually find and catch these legendary animals. So I definitely do add in the little bit of, um, of science to, uh, to get kids to realize that this is how you can go out into the world and find something new, whether that new species is Bigfoot or, um, or whatever new new species that has just been discovered or rediscovered an animal that was extinct, like the uh, clouded snow leopard that was just rediscovered. And there's, an, there's only a couple so of those left in the world, like isn't there? Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. I would think that if people thought that it was extinct, it's because there aren't that many of them left as it is. So. Excellent. And your protagonist is a 13 year old named, uh, is it Clivo or Clivo? Clivo, yes, Clivo Ren. Clivo Ren. And I understand he is he's inherited the mantle from his late father, um, who was a, a cryptid hunter, and he's looking for a creature whose blood grants everlasting life. How'd you come up with that idea? Yeah, so you know, I just came up with the idea that uh, you know, like, why does he need to find a cryptid? Well, because there must be one cryptid out there that can end the world, you know, in, in adventure novels, you need high stakes. And sure. so I thought there's one cryptid out there that can grant immortality. So of course the bad guys want to get their hands on this cryptid yeah. so that they can be, yeah. So they can be immortal and rule the, rule the world. Um, and then I just thought of the idea of how fun would it be if your parent was training you to do secret missions, 
but you weren't even aware that that's what they were doing. Nice. And so in the book, Clive's father, who is the best cryptid catcher in the world, um, and it's his job to go around and find cryptids and protect cryptids, and then to also find the immortal one and protect that cryptid from the evil bad guys. Uh, and in the meantime, he's training his son, Clivo, to t- someday take over as a cryptid catcher. But he doesn't tell Clivo this is what he's doing because he wants Clivo to somewhat have a normal childhood without having the weight of the world that he needs to eventually save the world um, from the bad guys. So he, even though he's training Clivo in jujitsu and marksmanship and different languages so he can travel the world... Uh, he still tries to give Clivo a pretty ordinary childhood, uh, but then his father mysteriously dies, and Clivo is thrust into having to take on the role of cryptid catcher, uh, which he's not quite prepared for. So he kind of bumbles his way into it. And it's a duology, isn't it? So you've got you've got two books. The first one is the cryptid catcher. Uh, followed by the Cryptid Keeper, which is uh, further adventures of of Clivo. Um, uh, any more? Any more in the uh, pipeline? First of all, uh, none in the pipeline right now. You know, with publishing, money talks, sure, and yeah. so we're waiting to see how these books do. Um, of course, if they sell really well, there will definitely be more adventures of Clivo and the Myth Blasters. Uh, but nothing in the pipeline right now. But in the meantime, I am working on some other books uh, still in the realm of cryptids and still in the realm of getting kids out into nature to look for them, to have their own adventures. Do you, um, do you ever do, you know, in-store book readings or anything like that? Or is it something you promote just via the internet? How, how do you get the message across to, uh, to children? And well, and obviously their parents will be buying the books for them. Yeah, absolutely. The best way that I reach out to kids is I do school visits. I go to libraries. I go to the Bigfoot conferences. I go to literacy conferences and talk to uh, teachers there about how they can use fantasy books like mine to explore different themes. Um, And I do occasionally do bookstore signings, but those can be tough uh, because until you're a really well-known author, you're not going to get parents bringing their kids to see you. So I am definitely in that stage of being a new author where if I do a bookstore signing, like three people will come and one of them is my mom. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and the, uh, and I was going to be a guest author at the Denver pop culture con. Um, but unfortunately it was canceled with COVID, but, Uh, I look forward to attending Comic-Cons coming up here uh, to speak with uh, kids at these, you know, massive conventions where people do cosplay and talk about superheroes. And so I can introduce cryptids and cryptozoology to them at those conventions. What will you be dressing up in? What's your cosplay outfit? Oh, that's a good question. I would say I go to the Renaissance Festival every year and I, you know, have my little medieval flowy maiden's dress so nice. i'd probably just wear my my renaissance festival costume <laughs> and and i do have a full bigfoot costume but it is so hot that i can only put it on for about 2.5 minutes at a time and then i need to douse my head in ice cold water <laughs> and we're from a generation that 
read books. I mean, even I'm guilty, even as a journalist, guilty of not reading that much anymore. You know, everything's just online and, and that sort of stuff. Um, what's books, obviously, they had a bit of resurgence with kids, obviously, with Harry Potter and, and that sort of stuff got kids back into reading. Um, and I assume that's kind of one of your one of your goals is to, to get kids with the actual, you know, tangible thing in front of them turning the pages. Um, how's the, from your, in your opinion, are children still reading or are they just sort of engulfed in the electronic mediums now? Yeah. I mean, I think that with all of the screens, reading has taken a hit for sure. You know, it's hard to get a kid to put down a game of Fortnite or Grand Theft Auto and pick up a book. Uh, but reading is still very much alive and well. And I enjoy writing these adventure novels for kids because I think that fun adventure novels are a great, accessible, fun way to get kids into reading. So I love writing adventure novels because I think adventure novels are a great, accessible, fun way to get kids interested in reading. Because my belief is that you want to teach kids that reading is fun. And so... And then you will turn into lifelong readers. So you need to give kids choice in the books that they want to read. And if you allow kids to read whatever book they want to read, whether it's a fantasy book, a spy novel, a graphic novel, then you can really instill in kids that reading is fun and they will turn into lifelong readers. So don't be afraid to let your child read a graphic novel or a spy novel, uh, because then eventually that where adults will be reading, reading Pulitzer Prize winning novels uh, be, just because they want to devour anything that they can get their hands on. That's the written word. I love the uh, cover of the, the your first book where um, Clive O's taking a selfie by the looks of it with some uh, with a Bigfoot sort of beast. It's, uh, it kind of encompasses a little bit what we've been talking about, doesn't it? Um, the, the merger between the well, between technology and the, and the written word. So have you got any events coming up? Yeah. Uh, on the weekend of October 15th, I will be at the Texas Bigfoot Conference in Jefferson, Texas, speaking about uh, cryptozoology for kids. And there's, I will be doing a few coming up. And, uh, you know, as the I think the world is still a little hesitant about are we going to open up? Are we going to do big in-person events. Uh, so I'm still doing a lot of online events, but I will be in person at the Texas Bigfoot Conference in October. And have you attended that conference before? Yes, I spoke there last year as well. And it's just a fantastic historical town. And I stay in a haunted hotel nice. where I was there for three nights and I had three very strong paranormal experiences. And I'm not even into the paranormal. That's not something I research or seek out. Uh, so that was very fun to be in a haunted hotel, the Hotel well, Jefferson. And so the entire entire weekend is fun. You got to tell me a little bit about that before you uh, before you scarper. The um, what was these paranormal experiences? Yes. What what was the background of the hotel? First of all. Uh, so the hotel, you know, Jefferson, Texas, is a very old city. It is right on the bayou there. So it used to be uh, in the 1800s, a big stop um, on the river for for supplies and to uh, for ships to stop at. And so it's just very old, very historical. 
the building where the hotel is in used to be many different things over the years, all the way dating back to the 1800s. And there was another hotel in town that burned down and was apparently very haunted. And the Hotel Jefferson took a lot of items from that haunted hotel and put it in their hotel, which I think brought even more ghosts over. But my experiences of paranormal activity there were I had just checked in and there was a very long hallway with all sorts of neat, creepy things in it, dolls, artwork, lights. And I thought I have to take a photo of this hallway. And so I lifted my my phone to take a photo. And just as I lifted my phone, someone walked into view at the very end of the hallway. And so I lowered my phone to let them pass and nobody was there. And then another experience I had is I was taking a nap and right across from me, there was uh, a vanity mirror. There was a little vanity place to sit with a mirror. And I woke up from my nap and I looked right across the room at the mirror And just as I looked at it, the mirror slowly tipped forward until I could see my reflection. Jeez. (laughs) And then the other thing is that there was a, um, for the TV, there was a remote control to turn the TV on and off. I never watched TV. I never moved the remote control. But whenever I would come into my room, even if I just came in from the bathroom, the remote control was in a different place. Out of there, if that happened, to be perfectly honest. I'm I'm a bit chicken when it comes to actual paranormal events. I I, I pump it up and, well, there's bravado. I've done this in the UK. I've gone and uh, sought out haunted hotels, so to speak, Um, and then I kind of stay one night and then chicken out and then leave. Um, I did it inadvertently once, actually. I was was staying in a small village in Hampshire, um, and I booked a a room in in a sort of pub, and... I had a strange experience. See, I, like I'd never actually had any paranormal experiences before that that I could document or anything that I've perceived, but I just had this feeling that someone was in the room with me all night. In fact, and I booked this place on a whim. I never really had any sort of experience like that before, and it just didn't feel right. Like it was like it was someone watching me. Basically, is what it felt like. Anyway, I woke up in the morning and I'd, I'd checked in when it was night. Uh, nighttime, and I didn't really realize my surround, so to speak. It was just a place to to crash. Um, and I opened the curtains, and there was a, a graveyard straight outside my window, like you know, just a few feet away from oh, no. the hotel room. Yeah, and it actually, da- I went and had a look at it, and it dated back to the uh, Napoleonic Wars um, in the UK. So, it was soldiers uh, that were killed in the in the wars with Napoleon, um, and. I, that gave me a bit of a shock straight off the bat because it was, it was a traditional, really creepy-looking joint, you know what I mean? Um, and, yeah, and, look, I went and I spoke to the you know staff when I was checking out and stuff like that, and they said, didn't you know this was a haunted hotel? And I was like, ah, oh, no, I didn't. And I, I assume they don't really advertise that sort of thing, you know what I mean, because it's probably not that great for business. But, yeah, <laughs> that was my... That was my experience. So where can people uh, find the Cryptid Keeper and the, the Cryptid Catcher? Is that, uh, I see there's a link to Amazon and there's one to Barnes & Noble uh, on the site. Is that that's the best place to pick it up? Yes, absolutely. You can uh, get, I always encourage people if you're in America to shop local at your local bookstore. 
um, to support small business, but you can also get it if you're in America at the library. And if you're overseas, I believe that you can get it on Amazon or, and, uh, and you can find us online there and you can also order a signed copy of my books from the Sasquatch Outpost. So that was Occam's Razor episode, uh, 49. We've been speaking with Leah Fisher and talking about her books, uh, author of the cryptid keeper and the cryptid catcher. Uh, books, not just for kids. I could see myself reading one of those, actually, Leah. So uh, thanks thanks for coming on the show today. Yes, if you're in Bailey, Colorado, come see us at the Sasquatch Outpost. It's outstanding. So thanks for coming on, Leah, and uh, being part of Occam's Razor. And um, all the best for the future. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Cheers, cheers.